This episode of Paper Team is brought to you by Roadmap Writers. Roadmap Writers gives screenwriters the tools needed to take their skills to the next level with courses taught by industry executives. In just two years, Roadmap has helped more than 40 writers find representation. Visit RoadmapWriters.com and use the code ROADMAP, all one word, all caps, to save $15 off your first program. Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And today we're going to talk about rewriting your TV script. Whether you're working on a spec or inside a writer's room, we are going to discuss the reasons why you should rewrite and things to watch out for. Welcome to our very first Paper Tease feedback session. A few weeks ago, we started our very own free competition where listeners can send in teasers of their original TV pilots for feedback and prizes. And we will usually cover two teasers per Paper Tease segment. But since this is our first one, which is covering the entire month of May, we will give feedback on four teasers. And as a reminder, you can read all the rules and send in your own teasers at paperteam.co slash teaser. And just to clarify some questions we've received, Paper Tease is a rolling submission, which means there is no due date. We are taking submissions anytime and then adding them to our pool of scripts to choose from. So every month, we'll pick some teasers to read and review, regardless of what month they were submitted in. Now, you do only get one entry, but that entry doesn't expire. So if you submitted in May and you weren't chosen, you could be chosen to be read in September. So just send it in whenever you feel it is ready. All right, let's get started. And you can find all these teasers that we'll be talking about in this episode in the show notes at paperteam.co slash 90. So what is our first teaser? The first one is Chattahoochee by Clint Williams, and it seems to be a drama script. So in this script, a young African-American slave named Cato is being hunted down by slave catchers and their dogs in Virginia, chased through the forest as he tries to throw them off his scent. Cato wades into a river and can't quite get away as they capture him with a lasso and pull him down into the water. What do we think about this one, Alex? Well, I actually really like this teaser, especially given that it is a teaser trying to throw you in the world. I think it just did that almost perfectly. My one major bump is that I wanted more clarity in the prose, especially given that the concept is of a chase, right? You have those slave catchers chasing Cato through the forest. I really wanted more of clarity in terms of the back and forth between those two sequences, how close the slave catchers are to Cato, especially given that there is an element of intercut mentioned on, I believe, page two, where it says intercut series of shots, forced Cato and slave catchers. I wanted that to be explicit within that prose. Yeah, I agree. I thought that the action and the description in this was really good. Uh, it got me invested. The pacing and the use of fragments in the writing really helped with that too. But you were right. There were definitely a number of times where I was a little confused as to what was happening, when and where, uh, especially with that intercut stuff. At one point, I'm just going to read a little excerpt that kind of confused me as to what was coming from where. It goes, he zigs and zags as he runs, circles a tree twice before continuing forward. He shinnies up a trunk of a sprawling live oak tree, grabs branches, climbs higher. A stream of urine arcs off of one side of the tree. Cato climbs higher. A stream of urine arcs off the other side of the tree, and the baying grows louder. Now, to me, that's a little confusing because it's, it's not the most intuitive thing for someone to be peeing off of a tree. So <laughs> I was like, is this him? Is there other dogs down there peeing? Is there a creature up in the tree doing that? That? Like, why is he doing this? Is he trying to like put his scent on a tree? Like, it was just a little bit confusing. So he could just say like, "Cato pees off the side of the tree." Like, it just is making it as simple as that would would make it a little clearer right. for us when it's an unusual thing to be doing. No, I totally agree. And I think, I mean, maybe to some people this sounds like a network note, but you got to trust us in the sense that. 
there's a lot of confusion out there, right? Like clarity is your friend. So、mm-hmm. the more explicit you are, the better it is because we really get the dramatic question. And especially since already within that script, you're using different slug lines with intercut of shots. I think specifying and delineating those what those shots are in those moments would really clarify in the read. My other little bump, and it's a, it's a more minor one for me at least, was as much as I love the use of sound in this teaser, I would say you gotta be wary of using the same descriptors. For example, the word "baying" is used nine times in four pages,、uh, and that's especially noticeable given that it's all caps because it's sound. And on that note, I would also say to be consistent with the capitalization and bold use, especially when it's a location change or sound or other descriptor. The only other thing for me was just. The ending of the whole sequence. I think it's really important as to where you end your your teaser and why it's you know considered the button on that scene, and it's what's going to make us want to get into the rest of the script. So for me. It felt a little bit like basically what happens is he gets the he's wading into this river he's stuck in there he gets the lasso thrown it misses they pull it back they throw it again it gets him it goes around his neck they pull it backwards and we hear a splash. Now that to me borders a little bit on firstly the confusion versus mystery and tension side of things. It's like, well, what does that mean? Did his neck break and he died and he's in the water? Is he being pulled backwards?、Uh, I think Alex, you thought at one point that the rope was over a tree and he was being hung, but I didn't hear, like read that either. And so, I think you could be a little bit clearer about what exactly happened there. And my other note on that is just that perhaps for me. I almost wanted to leave the the teaser on. Will he be caught or will he not? Like he's in a situation where he's just about to get caught, and we don't know, and we want to read on to find out, as opposed to resolving the entire sequence with a clear thing of he's caught or he's dead. It's interesting because I think this is something we Nick and I disagree on. Where I think we do agree that the the drama of the teaser is that chase, but I was fine with. That chase being resolved in that teaser,、uh, because in a sense, the dramatic question of the teaser is about whether Cato is able to escape or not, and ending on this horrifying image. Of Cato stuck in the mud, struggling to escape. That's also juxtaposed with the slave catchers looping the rope around his neck and violently snatching him backwards. That was a very visceral way to start the pilot and the show, and I thought that was a really compelling way of throwing yourself right in there. With that said, to your point, one way to solve maybe the clarity of it would be in the phrasing of some of the verbiage. As I mentioned earlier, the descriptors for the sounds could be changed. The end of the teaser is the word splash, which leads to confusion. Because Nick, you thought that he was not being snatched backwards, or what were your thoughts on the way? It was it just a little unclear. Like a splash could be him struggling in the water. It could be him falling backwards into the water. It could be him drowning in the water. It could be anything. So, I think that being a little clearer about what exactly happens, like if it's they start pulling him back and we see his unconscious body being dragged back through the water, I'd be totally down for that. I think that would be a fine ending. But just the deliberate confusion there to me doesn't make it as an impactful an ending.、Mm-hmm. To me, it was less confusing. Rather than it wanted to be impactful in that moment, and、mm-hmm. I think it is useful to end on a powerful image. So, when Cato dragged across the mud, could lead to perhaps a lessening of the impact of that last moment. Yeah, perhaps I just think that like just ending with splash isn't really ending on a strong image either. So I think that there's something in the middle of those two things, and whatever the intention of the author is, to find a stronger endpoint for that 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 kind of keeps us interested. So to that point, let's look at the effectiveness of this as a teaser. Like, what makes us want to read on versus not? 
Well, it's interesting because I thought this was a very effective teaser specifically because it told a complete story, which goes against everything we've said about teasers. That said, the fact that it resolves the dramatic question only hints at what the world is about, because the dramatic question here is only about this man's fate, which I would argue is still in question at the end of the teaser. He is dragged backwards. We don't know whether or not he lives. I believe he's dead. I think you believe he's alive. Yeah, I mean, to me, it seems like he's probably the protagonist, given that he's the first person we see. He's given a name. He seems to be important. I think that he's probably going to wake up in the next scene in a slave camp and the story is going to follow him from there. That seems to be what's clear to me. It's interesting because I I saw afterwards that the episode title is Cato Runs, Mm. which reading it now also makes me think that it could also be about this teaser being the inciting incident for a bigger world or other characters. Mm -hmm. Now, to your point, I would agree, hopefully, that this is about this one character, Kato, but maybe it is about these other characters. Yeah, it could be a flash forward even to, and then we go back and see how we ended up in this situation. It's, it's not really clear. So I think that the fact that we have all these possibilities in our head is a good thing. It means that we think there is a lot of potential for story still to be told after reading this teaser, and that's great. Let's go on to something completely different with our second teaser called Christian Cross by James Creviston, and that is a comedy. And in the teaser, a woman is being chased by a werewolf. Two monster hunter appears and take it down, saving her. The two monster hunters nonchalantly transform the werewolf back into a human using a vial and set it on its way like they do this every day, all the while bantering about how they're looking forward to their kid taking over this job for them. Nick, did you enjoy this teaser? I thought it was a really fun idea and situation, and I I liked that it was kind of making fun of perhaps the overly serious supernatural drama type thing where there's there really is a a werewolf that's going to kill someone, a vampire, and that kind of thing, and kind of deflating the air out of that. My kind of major thoughts on this would be that it didn't make the most of the situation that it had. In fact, by the second sentence, the scene is kind of resolved and the werewolf is pulled down and there's there's no longer a dramatic question left in the air. So if this were me, I would definitely use the kind of the game of this scene to to your advantage, especially in comedy where you've got a really funny, cool setup situation. A woman's being chased by a werewolf. She can't see that or hear that because she's got the headphones on and these other people are trying to capture it instead of just being like instantly cool situation resolved live in that moment and explore that no, i definitely agree in the sense that i wanted you to lean more into the world right like this person this character is being chased by a werewolf i read this obviously cold without any context so when i read something like as she rounds a bend a figure joins her on the trail it's gaining on her as a big furry paw extends to grab her and an arrow slams into the beast knocking it back. I mean, that's a cool imagery. But then towards the tail end of that page, the word werewolf appears, which suggests that the reader has to do the mental math of, oh, this big furry creature was a werewolf. And I feel like if you spell it out, if you emphasize it in the prose, that she's actually being killed, or rather she's being chased by a freaking werewolf who's about to kill her, that's insane. An important thing for comedy is not just to hit the one note. If you you hit the note and you resolve it, and then you spend the next couple of pages having the characters banter about that one thing that we already know and we've already seen, then it's not going to be as interesting as perhaps escalating a situation, reversing a situation, having fun and playing with that and 
coming at it from different angles instead of just here's the situation now here's a couple of jokes about it well to that the fact that they're sort of casually talking about the situation should be juxtaposed with potentially the horror or the tension of that situation initially uh, so i think there's a lot more milk to be milked uh, so to speak <laughs> yeah it's a cool idea having these people it's just such a second nature to them that like this is the kind of thing they do after dinner before they go and put their kid to bed or whatever but yeah i think that to make the most of that like alex said juxtapose it with something more or horrifying moving into a couple of the little micro notes in terms of the formatting i did notice that the the dialogue was double spaced which would usually suggest it is a multicam but the situation to me doesn't suggest multicam because they're running through a forest and there's a werewolf and stuff and you can't really do that on a multicam live stage in front of an audience so unless this is some sort of like hybrid sitcom thing i i just think that the multicam spacing might be the wrong format for this and it doesn't seem to be consistent with the rest of the multicam format in terms of the way the headings are done and the characters and the action are done i would also say in terms of the formatting uh, another note about capitalization uh, i would capitalize the woman character as well as the werewolf characters at the top because they are characters and as it currently stands, only the name of the couple are capitalized. Uh, so I would definitely highlight that in the prose. And also, I would add maybe a, a clarification when this other woman is stepping from the bushes that it is, in fact, another woman, given that the first initial character is just named woman. And uh, just another little thing in the parentheticals, it feels like we're cramming a little bit too much in there. Maybe that's just exacerbated by the double spacing. But at one point, there's a parenthetical that says dryly as if he said it a million times before. I am sure that you could find one or two words that would say that just as effectively and that it doesn't seem to be forcing an interpretation upon the actor quite as much. But aside from that, overall, what made us want to read on for the rest of the script versus not? How effective was this as a teaser for you, Alex? Well, I do like the situation and concept, uh, juxtaposing the casualness of Monster Hunters with the reality of it happening in a suburban setting, I thought was really cool. Uh, with that said, as we just pointed out, uh, I think living in that situation and heightening the craziness uh, could work in your effort to make it more compelling. Yeah, absolutely. I think that just given the kind of fairly fast-paced, breezy nature of this read. If I had the full script in front of me, I would definitely be flicking forward a few more pages and seeing how it goes from here. But I think that making it more effective as a teaser in and of itself would really help to compel the person to read on. And, and I think it only ended up being about two pages, really, after you take the title page and the, the top of the third page out. So you can potentially take one more page to really live in that moment and explore the full comedic potential of this teaser. Agreed. And what is our third teaser? All right. Our next one uh, is called Conquer by Katie Brown. Uh, it's also a drama. And this is told in sort of three vignettes. Now, the first one takes place in a car in Moscow. Uh, a Korean man is arguing with his Russian wife about the, the rising price of oil. It seems they can't really afford to drive somewhere. She gets out and makes a phone call. Then we cut to the Cherokee Nation in Georgia, where a group of Native American oil workers are mounting this uh, bountiful field of oil. And then again, we cut to a town in Albany, New York, in the aftermath of some kind of battle where uh, an 18-year-old Native American woman is sort of interrogating a 17-year-old Russian soldier who's bleeding out on the ground and deciding whether or not she should shoot him and execute him right there. What were your thoughts on Conquer, Alex? Well, I did enjoy the situations, but I thought that the world, although interesting and perhaps complex, is very abstract as it stands. I'm seeing scenes with characters, but I'm unclear of what the show is about or what is at stake or how they all connect together. And I don't mean necessarily just on a narrative level, but even broadly speaking, I want to live more in each scene. And we keep repeating that note, but it is true that we want to see more of that dynamic at play as opposed to, in this example, cutting away to something completely different. Uh, and it's almost like this is setting up three different shows. And that's not to say that um, the scenes in themselves are not connected 
compelling, but I think we both want more of that one, correct? Yeah, I agree. I think that if you chose one of these scenes and then just lived in it for the teaser, and for me, it's probably the the woman after the battle deciding whether she should kill this guy and getting into that, and then you can just take the opportunity to explore the rest of these threads once you get into the pilot itself. It is funny because I think that people automatically think, oh, it's a teaser. I've got to be quick and fast-paced and burn through a bunch of stuff and raise a bunch of questions and make people interested. But that's not always true. I think you can take your time more to really live in that world and flesh it out. For example, that middle setting in the Georgia oil field is interesting as an imagery, but I'm not sure how it relates to that immediate next sequence where an 18-year-old girl is aiming a gun at this other teenager in Albany. Both of those images are interesting in a vacuum, but when put together, I'm just left with more questions and not in a, let me flip to page four. One way to maybe fix those connections, this doesn't just have to be a teaser issue, but also for the script itself, is using character descriptions. And perhaps this is a macro note for for most of the teasers that we've received so far in the sense of we're obviously assuming that these characters are connected somehow because they're part of this pilot, but you could give a hint of that in the prose. As it stands, all the characters are only described as Russian or Native American, which gives an idea as to their ethnicity, but no information as to who they are as people. Yeah, I do think in general, a lot of these teasers as well could have taken the time to really flesh out the character descriptions, give us a better understanding of who each of these people were. Again, I know that there's that impetus to make things quick and sharp and snappy, but character descriptions are one of the most important times where you can take a minute to really give us a good sense of them. One element of that is helping us understand what the show is about. So what is the show about, really? Uh, what are your thoughts on that? So here was my take on it. I kind of read this as almost like an alternate future where perhaps Native Americans had formed a new nation or some sort of superpower within the existing one where they were either perhaps invading Russia for oil or just at war with them over it. The way you just described this to me, that makes it so much more compelling as it currently stands where, again, we read these things in vacuum without log lines and perhaps sometimes without even a, a title page. So we go out in completely cold with no context. If you were to tell me right now that this is the logline and I know about the logline before reading the script, this is going to make it much more compelling. So assuming that is really the reality of this world and this is this post-apocalyptic or alternate future, I want more of that hint in the pilot to really hit it home that this is what this world is. Yeah, that was me just kind of piecing things together and making a few assumptions and guesses. And I might be completely wrong. I might just be misinterpreting that. But the fact that we've only seen Native Americans as the American characters, and then there's this whole thing going with Russia and the oil and they're tied into that, I was kind of like, what's the most interesting version of this that summons up in my head? Hopefully it's this, you know? And also we're both writers. So we're used to that mental math of what is this really about and, and so forth. Most people are reading this, most executives really are not going to be bothered to try to figure that out actively. You want them to be engaged in the questions of the characters in the story, not really the macro questions of what the show is about, because that's a bad kind of question to yeah, ask. And, and viewers on the TV too, like if this made it to, to air, your average person sitting at home watching, I think, is not going to be doing the same kind of mental math as writers uh, who are reading it. But in general, in terms of the writing, I thought the action in the description was really good. It, it kept me interested and drew me along, painted some great images. But I did find that the dialogue, I think, had a few areas where it could be cleaned up or, or strengthened. 
Firstly, just as a micro note, in that first scene where they're in Russia and they're speaking, all the dialogue is italicized, and it wasn't immediately clear to me that that's because it was in Russian. The way it's done in the script is it says that the radio DJ is speaking in Russian, which is capitalized and italicized, the word Russian, and then he talks in italics, and then our characters are talking in italics, but it's never clearly stated that all italicized dialogue is in Russian or subtitled, and I didn't really notice that connection until the third read. I thought that all the dialogue was just italicized as a, a stylistic thing. That's interesting because one of the pilots I wrote used italics to define subtitles pretty heavily. So when I read it, to me, it felt natural that these dialogue pieces were being subtitled. However, I do get your point that it should be really mentioned at least somewhere in that script that, oh, in parentheses, all italics are Russian or mm-hmm. whatever it is. Yeah. Even if you put it in a brackets and you're speaking outside of the world of the thing, that's totally fine just to make that clear. Another note on the dialogue is this at times it felt a little bit overhit or borderline melodramatic at a certain point. And the reason it feels like that is because we're so early in the script that I'm not yet emotionally invested in these characters enough to care to that level when they are having these kind of like almost heart-wrenching scenes in a teaser. So for example, there's this excerpt here, you know, Christopher, we have enough for the payphone. Christopher, it's not about that. Marie, no, it's about us not dying from frostbite because you're too proud. Christopher, I am not too proud. It's not, damn it, forehead against the steering wheel, Christopher grips with white knuckles. So that that is a very intense emotional dramatic scene but this is the first scene that we're even seeing in the script. So again, I'm not interested and invested enough in the characters for that to resonate with me. And so it feels a little bit tonally off right now. And the last sort of micro note is regarding establishing shots. On page four, there's, I believe, what is an establishing shot of Moscow, which I don't think is really needed given that the scene, or rather the shot, happens after that scene uh, in Moscow. And we've just lived in that moment for, I don't know, two or three pages with Russian characters or people speaking Russian. So you don't really need to specify an establishing shot on the tail end of it, especially given that you are transitioning out of that scene to a completely different location in Georgia right after it. As a teaser, let's take a look at the effectiveness. What makes us want to read on versus not? I mean, I did love the visual imagery. I think the situations in a vacuum are very compelling, right? You've got this 18-year-old Native American girl aiming a gun at this Russian soldier that's a teenager. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of like Red Dawn-esque. Uh, yeah, it's like Red they've Dawn. been conscripted or something, too, because they're so young. Like That's no, I, interesting I, I, to me as well. I love those ideas. But again, the fact that we had to do this mental math of it, I, I just wanted more of a hint of what the world is about and what the story really is about. Yeah, I agree. I think that it's a fine line to walk between spoon feeding the audience. Here's what it is and what's happening. And then withholding so much that it's almost frustrating at points to not know what's going on or know how these things are connected. So yeah, again, I think like you said, individually, each of these things are interesting and compelling, but making that connection between them clearer, I think would make a more effective teaser and make someone more likely to want to read the rest of the script. All right, let's move on to our final paper tease teaser for the month. And the last one is Mythos by Will McGee, which is a drama. And the teaser uh, follows a group of Vikings rowing to a small island where they confront several mermaids or sirens. They distract the creatures by sending in slaves who are then brutally killed by the sirens, revealing their bestial nature. The Vikings then approach and swiftly kill all but one siren, whom they capture and take back to their ship. We reveal that the Vikings had plugged their ears with wax to make them immune to the sirens' hypnotizing songs. 
Nick, what are your thoughts on Mythos? I thought overall this was a well-structured scene as a teaser. It was leading us into this situation where we think one thing's going on, but it actually turns out to be another. So it kind of plays with the audience's expectations well, and I really enjoyed that aspect of it. I definitely agree that the visuals are great, and it's a tease during the ancient world. Uh, my big question, though, was who is the protagonist? Is it the Vikings? Well, no, because the only characters named are the Sirens, but... Since two of them are killed and only one survives, I'm a bit confused about whose perspective are we living this world through. Yeah, there were some issues with the naming conventions there in that all three of these sirens were named and then two of them were killed immediately. So you probably didn't need to name those sirens. They could have been siren one and two. Whereas the Vikings coming in, who seemed important and seemed to be taking the action, were called Viking one and two, which was telling us as readers that they're not as important. So I think that, yeah, choosing who to name and who not to name is a good thing to keep in mind there. And to that, I wanted more of a distinction between the sirens, uh, especially since the kills are kind of repetitive. You have a lot of uh, enchanted and feasting and synonyms of devouring. Ultimately, the same action is being repeated multiple times, but the three sirens seem a bit indistinguishable from one another. Once again, this is something that can be fixed through, in my mind, character descriptions. Uh, there's a lack of identifying markers, either physically or internally, about who these people are. I do like the way they're introduced, especially if Sedna is the lead, but I wanted more of an idea of who she is outside of literally her killing someone. Uh, and it's the same note about the Vikings and the Thralls. It can help us try who these people are as we move through the stories if you have a little bit of an identifying marker. So I did have one broader logic question about this story, and that's why did the Vikings send in these thralls or slaves to die? Why not just have everyone put wax in their ears, you know, and, and walk in with swords and have more men to kill them? It kind of feels like one of those things that's almost done to make a cool scene in a story for the viewers, but doesn't track as much with the internal logic of the world. And I think there it would if you could make a couple of things clearer. For example, if they came in and the thralls got hypnotized and the Vikings figured it out as it was happening and stuffed something in their ears. Or even if we don't see that happen and we reveal it later, we figured it out like, oh, cool, these guys outsmarted them. Or perhaps, you know, making it clear, and I think this is what the writer was going for, was that the Vikings were pretending to be enchanted to get close to them and throwing these guys away. But that wasn't as clear as it needed to be on the page that the Vikings were uh, like kind of doing some sort of ruse. So to me, it just kind of seemed like they're deliberately walking into a situation intending to have people die for no real reason and then kill them once the audience had seen how dangerous these sirens were, you know? It's interesting what you just said in the sense of you couldn't reveal on the B side that there was only maybe one candle to create this amount of wax that only the Vikings chose to put in their ears. Mm -hmm. I think that's a, a way to enhance, again, the narrative and the, the dilemma at play. So moving on to some of the micro stuff on the page, I did think every now and then, especially early on is where it's going to trip you up the most, is some of these redundant wording or unnecessary details. One that I noticed straight off the bat was a single spherical air bubble. I mean, all air bubbles are spheres and that kind of thing. So you could just say they're an air bubble. There's no need for that level of detail. And then a sentence or two later, a small Viking ship rose towards a small island, just watching out for using the same word twice in a sentence or in, in quick succession, uh, varying it up or taking it away when you don't need it. And I already said my comments regarding the redundant wording in terms of the kills, which I think also applies there. The only other thing that really bumped me majorly was perhaps over-explaining some of the reveals. The whole wax in the ears thing is great, and that's what makes this scene. But I think that on the page, it was perhaps 
a little too spoon-fed to the audience. So here's how it goes. Viking 2 removes her helmet and smugly grins at Sedna, pointing to wax in her own ears. Sedna's eyes widen with horror. The Vikings couldn't hear the singing. It was a trap, and they have outsmarted her. So to me, that those last couple sentences were just hitting it a few too many times uh, when you can leave it to the audience to figure it out and trust in their ability to do so. I think some of that is fine, but then maybe just pulling it back a little bit, you know, it was a trap or something like that. You don't need the extra they have outsmarted her. Just kind of reining it in a little. Are you saying you want Captain Akbar? It's a trap. <laughs> Admiral Akbar, yes. Admiral Akbar. Yeah. And just a very micro thing. You don't need to put C numbers on your scripts uh, when they're at this point. That only really happens once it goes to production. What made you want to read on versus not? I think the world and the setting and the mythology automatically kind of piques my interest. You can see that there are Vikings, there are these these creatures, and I kind of want to know more about the world and what's unfolding here, and perhaps what they're capturing these sirens for. Like, why not just kill them all if they're beasts? So I think that that leads me on to be curious about what's going to happen next, as well as just this whole protagonist thing. It's like, it, it didn't occur to me until the very end that perhaps the siren is the protagonist. And it's like, well, that's an interesting point of view for the story to be told from. I'm curious to check out more. I do want to see more siren shows on the air. That'd be cool. <laughs> I did like the the visceral nature of the kills, even though some of the types of kills are repetitive. But either way, I do enjoy the the setup. I do enjoy the world. And this is something that I would love to read. And again, yeah, it was a tightly structured teaser. And it played to that well. Now to close things out, let's give some general thoughts about these teasers. Overall, we thought the action and description writing was pretty strong throughout the teasers, but they did sometimes suffer from a lack of clarity or some repetitiveness or unnecessary detail in the writing. The other comment that we keep having is that people can definitely put more into their character descriptions to help us tell characters apart and make them feel unique and interesting. And it's not just about the ethnicity or the age. Really try to introduce us to who they are as people. And like we said in our TV Characters 101, which is PT46 Paper Team episode, character descriptions are probably one of the few places where you can editorialize in your prose. So lean into that. And lastly, just remember to keep it concise and focused. Think about what is the dramatic question of the teaser and how am I answering it or not answering it. And it should feel like a teaser or cold open with a strong button at the end, not just kind of the first eight pages of your script. And I know this sounds like the opposite of what we seem to be saying when we say living in the world. But the reality is that if you are focused in that dramatic question of the teaser, then you are allowing the reader to live in that moment. With all that said, let's crown the two super duper Paper Tees winners of May, who will each be awarded a free month of Roadmap Writers Premium Writers Network of a $69 value. Nice. This month-long program will grant the winner uh, one open pitch session, which they can choose from dozens of execs to pitch their projects to, uh, a live online elevator pitch to three execs in an online roundtable setting, four educational webinars, one private logline review with Roadmap's Director of Writer Outreach, one group pitch webinar with the literary manager Chris Decker, a fictional entity, and one interactive webinar with Roadmap's Creative Director on a behind-the-scenes look at the industry. And the winners are... Drawing them drums. The first paper tease winner of May is Chattahoochee by Clint Williams. Congratulations. Congrats. The second winner of the May paper tease competition is Mythos by Will McGee. Congrats. Awesome. You guys will receive that awesome prize. Let us know how it goes. Check it out by mail. And if you want to send your own teaser, you can do that at paperteam.co slash teaser. And we look forward to checking all of your teasers out and hopefully reading some more out and uh, giving you cool prizes. All right, let's talk about rewriting. And this episode is a bit of a spiritual successor to our PT28 episode from Outline to First Draft. 
And one of the reasons why we're doing this episode is because we got the following email from Brianna, who asks, I'm curious, on average, how many drafts does someone go through when specking a show and how much do these drafts change from one to the next? The more I work at slashing away darlings and reshaping, the better the comedy gets, the more hilarious the situation becomes. It takes a lot to delete an entire scene when I realize it isn't working for the story, but usually it is for the best. However, I'm barely on a second revision, and I've come up with situations that seem funny but just end up not working for the overall storyline. I feel winded already. I'm wondering how many drafts writers go through to get to the gold. Also, how do you know when you've struck gold? When should you stop revising so as to not descend into madness? Well, there's a lot to unpack in this email, and let's start with a simple question. Why and when should you be rewriting? Well, I think the amount of rewriting you do on your own work should be weighed up as a matter of return of investment on the time spent rewriting. If it takes you five minutes or an hour to tweak a line or fix a glaring plot hole or clean up some confusing scene direction, absolutely do it. If it's going to require a fundamental rebreak or reimagining of the concept and a page one rewrite, then you kind of need to weigh up what your time is better spent doing, working on the eighth draft of this one pilot sample or starting on a brand new pilot sample and just letting that one go for a while. If you're working on your own timeline, say on a spec pilot, sometimes it really does help to just set it aside and work on something else and come back to it weeks or months later once you have a clear mind. Yeah, and like the great thing says, you can't polish a Trump. If you can't pinpoint your issues with your script and you keep rewriting in vain, you will drive yourself crazy. And as mentioned, maybe you should take a break from your complex fantasy dragon pilot and outline some completely unrelated project. I personally like to have projects at different stages so I can rewrite one thing while outlining another without getting too tired of it. Right, and no one's script is ever perfect. People can forgive a few rough edges if the vast majority of the product is interesting, compelling, and skillfully done. Uh, when I was a creative executive reading dozens of scripts a week, I once joked that trying to identify potential in emerging writers was like watching a bunch of people drowning in a pool, splashing around trying to stay afloat and saying, I like that one's backstroke. <laughs> um, you know, I honestly think you probably need 80% of a good script for someone to be really impressed. There's always going to be issues. You know, the wording of one line on page 26 really isn't going to change someone's impression so vastly as to make a real difference as to whether they think you're a great writer or not. If they're enjoying it, they'll forgive it. And if they were hating it, that's not going to change their mind anyway. There is definitely a point you reach where you are over rewriting stuff, going back and forth on whether there should be a comma or an ellipsis or a hyphen or contracting and uncontracting words in dialogue. I call this, let's say, line fudging uh, for this PG podcast. And I ultimately think it's useless because your subjective experience is going to change every time you read the script and you hear it slightly differently in your head. You're not making substantial changes at that point. And everyone who's reading it's going to hear it differently anyway. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, changing where you're putting that comma in your sentence is that level of granular detail that is just another version of procrastination. And we'll talk about notes in a minute, but the truth is that once you have gotten enough feedback on your project and you've addressed whatever notes you wanted to, then there's a point of diminishing returns when it becomes counterproductive to keep asking for feedback. Once I feel I'm done with a spec pilot and it is essentially locked, then the script can get sent out to whomever. And these people can give me notes, but by and large, these won't be addressed unless it becomes a professional 
professional setting instead of unpaid work. And at that point, my rule of thumb is that I will only do those rewrites if I'll either be paid for them or they're relevant tweaks done to send to specific producers or staffing meetings. Yeah, and I think there's a similar mindset to be had when you're actually working in production. You're on even tighter deadlines with real consequences for your job and production schedules. So you do the best you can, but you also have to fully realize that most of your dialogue lines, for example, are going to be polished and punched up by a showrunner to their satisfaction anyway. So maybe it's best not to spend two hours on thesaurus.com searching for the perfect adjective to describe how one character looks at the other. Honestly, they just want you to have the bones of a scene in place and a script in place and hand them something that works. You just have to put up the Christmas tree, let them hang the ornaments. And I think that does apply back to your own sort of spec scripts too. But to get to that question, how many drafts should someone actually go through before they reach the point where there's no point continuing to rewrite? Well, as you mentioned, when it is your own content, uh, deadlines are more ephemeral. So like any other rewrites, there really is no hard and fast rule when it comes to how many drafts one goes through to get a script ready. One or two is kind of too few, but hundreds may mean you're on a futile endeavor. Yeah, I think for me, you're never really done. You just reach a point where you have to stop. You have a deadline or you might need to just start on your next sample or whatever it may be. I think once you've made your best efforts to address multiple rounds of notes from friends and trusted confidants, you kind of make peace with what you can change and what you can't or aren't willing to. And then you just have to put it down. And that's kind of the point you reach when it's done. It's all about how much you're actually going to get out of the time you invest in rewriting it. The only true judge of ready should be yourself. And one way of figuring that out is through the feedback you're receiving. I'm a proponent of getting continual feedback at each stage of the process. It is kind of a reading onion. In fact, we made an episode just on that topic, that is PT8. And this is a very similar process to how a TV writer's room environment works where your peers will give notes and feedback across each stage. But we'll get more into this in our next section and let's get into the specifics of rewriting a TV script. So we've looked at when and why you should be rewriting. Now let's dig into the process itself. What does rewriting actually involve? Well, first we've got to take a look at both the rewriting from a spec script or spec pilot perspective and rewriting on an actual TV show. The overall process of rewriting your personal scripts is pretty straightforward. You are the boss, so it is up to you on how much effort you're putting in. But rewriting a script when you're on a TV show is more of a professional version of that process. So every showrunner, studio, and network will be more or less controlling than another. And this isn't really an all-size-fits-all model, but broadly speaking, it goes like this. So you're first assigned an outline to transform into a draft, and that is the writer's draft. Then you'll be getting notes internally from your showrunner or EPs, and then you will be rewriting the draft. And that is your second writer's draft. And then the showrunner or EPs will be too busy to wait for you to turn around another batch of notes, so then they'll do their own revisions within the script. Meanwhile, the studio and network will be giving their own sets of notes and adjustments. Whether you're the one applying them or someone else will depends on the show you are on, and all this escalates to studio draft and then network draft, and ultimately you get a production draft. But as you can see, we've been talking a lot about notes and feedback in that rewriting episode. So why is that? I think that's because the biggest thing about rewriting is addressing notes. That's the purpose of a rewrite. Someone, whether it's your writer's group or your showrunner or a network executive, thinks that certain things can be added, removed, or improved from what's currently on the page. 
And never forget, hashtag, that television is a collaborative medium, which means you will always be accountable to someone. Even showrunners have to address notes from studios and networks. That does not mean they agree with or have to do every single note. It just means that they understand this art form is, in part, about compromise. And you should understand that too. And look, when it comes to feedback on your own material, it is okay to sometimes not take a note, especially if it fundamentally alters the vision or the core of the work and what it's about. You don't have to take every note you get, but you should always be looking for the truth behind those notes and those compromises that can be made to get the best of both worlds while preserving the integrity of your script. If you're creating this world, then it's your vision and you know what you're going for. So don't be afraid to say no and this is what works for me if it's your friends giving you feedback in your script or something. Unless you're perhaps getting that exact same note from two or three different people, then it's a genuine problem that's probably bumping people out of it and you should probably do something about it. You know, as a writer, you need this strange mix of humility and stubbornness to know when to accept that other people might be right, but also to know where to draw the line. All of that said, if you are working for someone else in a writer's room, say if a showrunner wants a note to happen, then 99.9% of the time you do it. You can do your best to explain why you think that you should or shouldn't make the change, but if they still say they want it, then you do it. You are uh, serving at the pleasure of the president, as uh, Javi and Jose from Children of Tendu <laughs> like to say. And to that point about working on someone else's show, taking notes isn't about being agreeable and acquiescing to every demand. It's about realizing that this is not your script and understanding your own role within that other person's show. And most rooms have this three strikes and you're out policy when it comes to pitching. If no one is backing your pitch after three tries, then you need to let it go. And hopefully within that room process, you've talked things through enough times that you get why your EP, for example, is giving you these notes. Either way, notes given to you by your showrunner, producers, and networks are never meant to be personal notes about your actual writing. It's often about issues beyond your scene or episode. So for example, an actor was cut, so you need to rewrite that scene without his character. Or we're trying to set this new storyline in episode 5, so you have to plant that little seed in your dialogue in episode 4. Or maybe the network wants to really hit hard for the audience that moment when Jack fell down and broke his back when he went up the hill. So at the top of your scene, have him fetch a pail of water so we can then see it shatter in a million pieces. What can I say? Network really want people to understand what's going on. Is that season four of Lost? Or? Anyway, but really, if you still hate the notes given to you in this professional TV setting... Really, really think thrice, not twice, thrice about whether or not this is the hill you want to die on, because especially if you're lower on the turning pole, squabbling about notes should be a last recourse. Some EPs are more open to discussion than others, but this may very well be the hill you break your back on, like Jack in that ABC reboot. So let's get into the process. What are some of the macro elements of doing a rewrite, those bigger picture notes? Well, let's go back to something Brianna mentioned when she said, I've come up with situations that seem funny, but just end up not working for the overall storyline. And the truth is, if you find yourself continually removing or reworking drafted scenes, which do not fit within the overall storyline, there may be a bigger issue at play. And this is usually a sign that you should go back to the outlining stage and have your story be as streamlined as possible. It goes without saying that that story should be awesome, but that isn't really actionable advice. The draft should be there to make that story and characters come alive. But if the skeleton isn't there, it is just this assortment of funny moments without a cohesive whole. 
then rewriting is about sharpening those edges. You're not coming up with situations from whole cloth that is usually an outline or first draft. It's about improving and enhancing specific bits with those scenes to take those scenes to another level, like heightening jokes. Right. If your outline is good, then it should be impossible to write a scene that doesn't work for the story because you're writing what you already know works from your outline. But, you know, that said, often once you get things on the page, things that seem like they worked on the outline or the index cards don't quite feel right anymore. And sometimes you do need to restructure and move some things around. Now, this could be as simple as, well, this scene probably should come before this one and cutting and pasting it a little bit earlier. Or it could be that a scene is running long and it should be split up into two scenes. So you cut away to something else in the middle of it. Conversely, perhaps it doesn't feel right to break up such a serious moment with a cutaway to a funny B story. So instead, you let that scene play to its conclusion to allow that tension to build. Other times, you might just end up cutting a scene completely because you realize now it's on the page that it's actually not needed. So be careful about straying too far from your outline, as you may not be seeing the forest for the trees, but you can also just feel out how things are on the page, and that's often the true test of whether a story is working. And if you want to learn more about the process of breaking an episode as if you were in a writer's room, we recommend you check out our sixth episode of Paper Team Bringing the TV Writer's Room Process Home. I think the other major thing you're doing on the macro level for rewrites, aside from restructuring, is tracking through lines. Now, whether this is a character's emotional journey or just how the plot of a B story unfolds and resolves across three beats, or maybe it's a thematic through line that the events of the story are speaking to, rewrites are a good time to make sure that all of this is still tracking on the page as it should have been in the outline. So try reading just the scenes of the A story, or maybe the runner, and see if they make sense if that series of scenes were taken out of the context of the episode and just played one after the other. Then take a look at all of the scenes that a particular character is in and track their journey through the episode. Does it still make sense? Does it still feel satisfying or appropriately earned to the point that you arrive at for them? Or did something go missing when you trimmed a line here or there? So that's one thing to really watch out for. Now, moving on to the micro side of things, rewriting on that page, I personally tend to go scene by scene and storyline by storyline, and this is done in multiple passes. It isn't just one read or one rewrite and I'm done, but there are some things you should look out for when you go from scene to scene on that page. One of them is obviously grammar, typos, syntax error, a little trick that people use to catch typos is to read that content backwards, but that is actually the last thing you should be focusing on since your rewriting will inevitably change a lot of your script content. I think at the most basic level, clarity is the main thing that you are paying attention to and trying to fix in a rewrite. Can the reader follow the plot? Do they know who the characters are? Did everything make sense, both on a broader level and line by line? I think one of the most common versions of this that you'll pick up on a rewrite is a sentence where it's unclear which character is doing what. So if we said, John goes over to Craig and he takes out his knife and stabs him, out of context, you might ask who stabbed who, whose knife was it? A clearer version of that would be John pulls out a knife and stabs Craig. <laughs> Little homage to script notes there. Are you writing script notes on fiction right now? Is that what's <laughs> happening? All right, great. Well, to that idea of clarity, another element to watch out for in your rewrite is the prose. And everyone's first draft or vomit draft process is different. I tend to write my prose very short and to the point initially. And in the rewrite of my own scripts, I will allow myself to be a little bit more impactful in my description or in the prose or a little bit more flowery if I'm describing something specific. But don't be afraid to be blunt when the scene needs it. Is it a sequence with very fast-paced quick beats? Is it a slow and lingering observation of nature? There's a middle ground between writing something like 
Clara's finger rests on the gun trigger. She pulls her index muscles inward, setting off the powerful yet delicate rotation of the bullet inside the weapon chamber. Max doesn't have time to react as the projectile pierces his chest, his organs permanently damaged by the act. <laughs> and writing the same moment as Clara pulls the trigger, Max falls dead. Whichever end of the spectrum you start from, try to work your way to the other side in the rewriting process. And like we've said many times, your script is a blueprint, not a piece of fine art. So always prefer efficiency and clarity over being vague and flowery. Yeah, this is a saying that writing is rewriting. And it's true. Usually the very first draft you turn out is not going to be good. And that's fine. There's a reason they call it the vomit draft or the rough draft. For many writers, you are just writing the bad version of the scene that does the bad minimum it needs to do and hits the right points in your outline just so you have something on the page that can be improved. At that stage, I'll even sometimes write filler lines if I can't come up with the right thing, like joke about his hat or angry retort. It can be more productive just to get that out than to spend 15 minutes trying to perfect the wording because you know it's probably just going to change later anyway. The other element about rewriting is length. I like to keep my scenes within three pages unless it is a major sequence of events. And when you are rewriting, don't be afraid to take your scene on its own and really look at it. Print it out or pull it out on your tablet and then actually annotate it. You will quickly realize there are things you can always cut back on and trim. Maybe it is a line of prose that is too long or some piece of dialogue being repeated by someone else. You can also take a step back and see if there's another dynamic that could be played to shorten the scene and make it more impactful. Again, you got to be ruthless. Another example of that trimming is when you're either coming into a scene too early or leaving too late. There are often whole dialogue exchanges or paragraphs of action that really add nothing to a scene and can be trimmed completely for a much tighter scene without really losing anything. And I see this a lot in comedy with jokes that go off on massive riffs back and forth between characters, when often the funniest thing is a really strong setup and a punchline, and then everything else after that is just getting carried away and making the scene drag or even hammering the joke too hard and making that initial funny line lose its effectiveness. Some other elements you need to watch out for in your rewriting are characters and dialogue. Yeah, I think a lot of people when they're rewriting will do a thing called a voice pass. And what that is, is making sure your characters sound like your characters and distinct from one another. One thing that will often happen is that a line gets given to another character for some reason, like one character was talking too much or not enough in a scene, and then you change over the line, but then suddenly it sounds like another character's voice coming out of their mouth. So you then have to go back and make that sound natural and motivated for that other character to actually say it. Another common reason for rewrites, at least in comedy, is what they call a punch-up. And this basically just means trying to make the script funnier. So the story and the scenes are in place, but everyone goes through it again, often as a room and tries to improve what's already there. They try to what they call beat the joke with an even funnier pitch. And this will happen before a draft goes to production and then often again after the table read. Sometimes even the night before shooting or the day off if a writer is on set and coming up with lines and jokes for the actors as alternatives. Now this can be a great tool to make the script the best it can be, but you have to watch out for what you might call joke fatigue. So you kind of need to be wary of rereading your script so many times that jokes no longer seem funny for no other reason than the fact that you've already heard them over and over. To an outside reader who's never heard it before, it actually might still be hilarious. And this is not really just for jokes either. You can get too close to many aspects of your script and lose all objectivity, whether it's a line of dialogue or 
the plot making sense or whether a twist is actually surprising is being flagged too heavily or not enough. It's really hard to divorce what you know from what a fresh reader would know, which is why it helps to have those other people read it, even if they're not writers or in the industry themselves, just on a basic, does this make sense? And how did you feel about it level? Yeah, I can't really say there's a direct one-to-one equivalent to punch-ups for drama writers, since we don't really write jokes, we just drink heavily and cry in our sleep. (laughs) But that said, never underestimate the importance of dialogue in any script. The sad reality is most readers just skim over the prose and read the quippy parts. So this is undoubtedly the best avenue to show who your characters are. And for more on dialogue, you should check out our episode TV Dialogue 101. That's PT51. Let's go through a couple of frequently asked questions about rewriting. So what do you do if your script is running too long? Well, this is a very common problem because there's just so much good stuff in every script, right? How can you cram it all under 60 or under 40 pages? Well, the truth is you don't need it all. Uh, As we've discussed earlier, the rewriting part should also be about trimming and condensing moments for maximum impact. There's that classic adage that Nick mentioned about starting late and ending early for scenes, which pretty much always holds true. And if after you're rewriting, you are still running long, then you probably have too much content outright in your episode. And this may be actually a macro issue. That means that to fix it, you're going to have to take out potentially entire storylines. Yeah, I think this is a really common problem with writers is that their script is too long and that I couldn't possibly take out anything. It's all so good. It's all necessary. But I think once you actually analyze it, that's not always the case. Brevity is the soul of wit, isn't it? As I was outlining one of my pilots, for example, I realized that the script could end up being in the 70 to 90 page range when I wanted to make it a one hour script. So I had to excise from the pilot an entire storyline, which being honest with myself, I realized was not truly needed to convey the story of that script. It was a great side story on its own, but it did not add anything unique to an already dense story. So what about the flip side of that? What if a script is running too short? Well, conversely to writing long, having a short script usually means one of two things. Either you're writing your scenes too short, or there's simply not enough scenes in the story to begin with. So if you're writing scenes too short, that basically means you're leaving money on the table. You've spent all this time breaking, outlining, and drafting your script, and now you're 10 pages short of your 55-page goal. Well, look back at your meatiest scenes, and by that I mean the ones with either a lot of action or a lot of character moments. Are you actually milking the emotions out of those scenes? Are you leaning into the roller coaster turns? Or are you just writing these scenes very flatly, almost like you're blandly stating what the scene is about? If you actually believe in the structure you've built, then it probably means somewhere along the way you are skimming over emotional moments that need to be more lived in. And the other side of that is another macro issue. Maybe you are short because you just don't have enough story to tell. Well, one way of figuring that out is by looking at the amount of scenes you have. Is it substantially lower than the amount of scenes for such an episode? If so, I hate to break it to you, but you may need to go back to the outlining stage. Yeah, exactly. I think that it's easy enough to inflate and put more air into scenes and make your pages run a little bit longer. But that's not your problem at that point. Your problem is that you didn't do your outline correctly or that you have some bigger story issues that you need to go back and address. Exactly. And now let's go to the software side of things. Let me ask you, should I go back to my existing final draft document and rework the scenes or should I start a fresh one and rewrite onto a blank page? 
It really depends on how extensive the changes are. I would say in most cases, there shouldn't be so much to rewrite that you need to start fresh. You know, that's what we call a page one rewrite, and it usually requires a rebreak or a re-outline to go with it. What I usually do is save an identical copy of the FDX file or whatever program you're using and name it something like script title, rewrite, and date. So Mr. Johnson's happy house, rewrite, 42818. And then the next day I go and work on it, I'll save another copy of that one with a new date and then start working from that. So that way you have a number of iterations of the script that you can go back and look at. If you really liked a line that you'd written a couple of days ago, instead of losing it completely in that rewrite, you can pull from a previous version. Now, I wouldn't call these drafts per se. You could have seven different dated FDX files. It doesn't mean your script actually went through seven There is something to having that blank page there to not be too closely tied to other things. So if you ever need to rewrite a whole scene fresh, feel free to open up a document just for a scene and write that. But otherwise, I would say it definitely helps to have it there at least in another window to look back at what you're rewriting from. So a lot of people ask, should I use those script revision marks or colored pages when I'm doing my rewriting? So the way it works on a TV show is that the script coordinator will usually be the one sending you FTX files to edit within, and they will be the one collating any needed changes. And that is when revision mode kicks in, which adds stars next to any lines edited or changed within an existing draft. And it's the same for colored pages, which are ways of denoting versions of drafts. All of this is primarily used for internal tracking between writers, studio, network, and production. So unless it is specifically useful to your own private feedback process, I would not obsess over that when writing your own specs. But speaking of revisions, when do I call something uh, first draft, second draft, third revision, or final draft? That's entirely up to you and the context in which you're presenting it. Like you've been saying, if you're on a show, revisions are handled by the script coordinator, including those aforementioned writer, studio, network drafts, and colored revisions, for example, released as blue revisions, yellow revisions. These all have very real impacts and effects on productions and need to be consistent, so just leave that up to them to decide what to call things. But up until that point on a show, it's kind of between you and your fellow writers and showrunner to figure out how to differentiate versions and takes on scenes and things. Dates help, as mentioned above, often writing something like writer's name or writer's initials pass in the title works, like NW pass, if you're just kind of throwing scenes back and forth with each other. Now, if you're writing something on spec, aside from your internal date tracking of versions that we mentioned, whatever you end up sending out for people to read, whether that's representation, whether it's producers, staffing, all that kind of thing, shouldn't really be labeled on the cover page as seventh draft or even first draft. You don't want people thinking this is your first attempt at a vomit draft. You also don't want them thinking you've rewritten it to death and on this is the best you can do after 10 tries. At most, just put a date on it and then send it out clean. Except for what I do, which is I just put vomit draft in bold capital letters on every spec I send out. Oh, yes. That, that makes sense now. Wow. Uh, but <laughs> Thanks. And one last thing. There's really no such thing as a final draft. Except the software, which is overpriced. <laughs> What are our takeaways for this episode? Number one, with your own material, the amount of time you should spend rewriting depends on what you're going to get out of it and where your time is best spent. But TV is a collaborative medium, so in a writer's room, rewrites are part of that process. Number two, the main reason to rewrite is to address notes, whether from your peers or your bosses. So do your best to accommodate these without compromising the integrity of your work. Number three, there are many aspects to rewriting from macro elements like restructuring and tracking through lines to micro elements like clarity of prose, length of scenes, and character voices. 
Speaking of feedback, before we go, our paper tease competition is still open for submissions. So if you have a TV pilot teaser of eight pages or less, any format, any genre, you can enter it for free at paperteam.co slash teaser to potentially get feedback on air and win prizes from our sponsors. That brings us to the end of the episode. Thank you so much for listening in. You can get all the show notes for the episode at paperteam.co slash 90. And if you want to leave us a review, you can do that at paperteam.co slash iTunes. And we would love that. It's awesome. It makes us feel nice inside and other people can find our podcast too. Once again, this episode of Paper Team is brought to you by Roadmap Writers. Roadmap Writers give screenwriters the tools needed to take their skills to the next level with courses taught by industry executives. In just two years, Roadmap has helped more than 40 writers find representation. Visit RoadmapWriters.com and use the code ROADMAP, all caps, all one word, to save $15 off your first program. And as always, I'm on Twitter at TVCalling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. If you have any thoughts, feedback, ideas for future episodes, or questions, you can send them to ask at paperteam.co. And what are we doing next week? Well, next week, we're actually off for Memorial Day, but we'll be back on Monday, June 4th, with an entire episode dedicated to answering your questions and feedback. Everything you've been asking us about the TV running craft and business will be answered. Everything in 40 minutes or less. Literally everything. And keep sending those questions. We love answering them. So let's get some more. And on that note, we'll see you in two weeks.